0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is Douglas Moo, who is Kenneth T. Is it? Wesner, Wesner, right. professor. They all, they all, they all have names attached yes, to yes, indeed, of New Testament. And you've been at Wheaton how long? Twenty years now. Twenty years. Yes. Wow.
2: Yeah, it's gone quickly.
1: Yeah. Um, and you work in the graduate program, right, with uh, with graduate students, and have done a lot of work in Paul and and that kind of thing. But our topic is biblical translations. Mm. So um, my first question is. How did you get into this gig what what uh, what what is a nice guy like you doing in bible translation <laughs>
2: something I, I I often ask myself. <laughs> Uh the uh, group I'm a part of, CBT, the Committee of Bible Translation, mm-hmm. is the group that translates the NIV, and now we're in the mode of revising the NIV. Mm. Uh, it was formed back in the 1960s when mm-hmm. this translation was first conceived, um, and has had you know a continuing number of scholars over those years. Uh, in the 1990s, I was invited to join. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBT just invites its own members, so... They invited me to join. Uh, One of my colleagues at that time was Murray Harris, who Mm -hmm. was on CBT, and uh, Murray invited me to join. I said, "I'll give it a try," and uh, really glad I did. It's one of the most favorite things I've done in ministry.
1: One of my Old Testament mentors was Ken Barker. Oh, sure. So um, Ken was a mainstay of CBT for many, many years. Exactly. So. So I have a little bit of a feel for what's involved. So what I want to do is I want to talk about Bible translations in general, translations, uh, you know, the approach to translations, and a little bit about how a translation gets done. Between the two of us, we've worked on various translations, and they're structured somewhat differently in terms of how they work. But basically, I think most people think, you know, people get in a room and sit down and translate it, and boom, there it is. It's not quite that simple, is it?
2: Well, that's not too far from the (laughs) truth in a certain sense. Um, And I would want to distinguish between the initial translation work, and Mm -hmm. again, this is what CBT did back in the 60s and the 70s when Mm -hmm. the NIV was first being made. They met for eight to 10 weeks a summer. Uh, working really hard to work from the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic into English. So They it was did meet in exotic
1: scratch. locations, I mean, to some degree, right?
2: Yes, they, they usually met overseas, but <laughs> but they met overseas because it was cheap. They could find really cheap accommodations, <laughs> ah. and they met in some places that uh, – I would not want to stay in for even overnight, and they oh, okay. stayed there for eight to ten weeks. Oh, wow. My point is they really uh, sacrificed for mm-hmm. the work that, that they did back yeah,
1: in I Yeah, I, I like to tell people, just think about – if you just think about how it is that you have a Bible in your hands. Mm. And you think about the centuries that are involved in that process, you know, starting from the production of the original text all the way through to the preservation of the text, the passing on, the copying, you know, by hand one at a time, uh, generation after generation, and then eventually, you know, to what we have. It is the work, a sacrificial work of a lot of people, that allows us to have. That's right. Yeah,
2: it really is, and uh, it's a process that's been going on, as you say, for centuries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think every trans. Translation borrows and learns from translations before it. So Mm -hmm. uh, even though the NIV was done from scratch in a sense, Mm -hmm. uh, those people who were doing the work were learning from people that came before them.
1: So let's talk a little bit about how that worked, and let's start first with okay, you decide to do a translation from scratch, Um, and uh, so in the case of the NIV, uh, how did that work? I mean.
2: Well, it, it, there was, again, this was the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I can still remember the 1960s myself. Yeah, I can too. I think you can too. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people can't. But those were the days when, uh, as you looked around at the conservative church at least, you had the choice of the King James or the Living Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't much else. Mm-hmm. The RSV was tainted by the National Council of Churches, so mm-hmm. that wasn't being used much. And there was a strong sense we need a new English translation to serve the church well. So it was actually a layman who was trying to evangelize, uh, a businessman who would Mm. try to evangelize and use the King James and getting laughed at by people because of the strange English he was using with them. He said, we need a new translation of the Bible. So he talked some scholars at Calvin Uh into getting involved. They formed CBT. And then one of the critical things that people probably don't think about is the need for some finances, Mm -hmm. because uh, these people couldn't do their work for free. They needed to be supported. They needed places to meet and so forth. And the New York Bible Society, at that time was its name, came along to support the work. Just... Extraordinary! A lot of great stories there about how God provided for the work in the early days. It's
1: interesting. It's an irony because the the origins of the Living Bible are actually pretty similar. They grew out of the devotions I hmm. think that Ken Taylor had with his yeah. family, and he yeah. felt like I, I can't communicate with my kids. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> using this, so uh, he went about trying to to produce something that would work uh, in his family devotions. So, uh, okay, so you, you got the financing, you get the committee in, in place. Now, what is that? I mean, you got 66 books, you got to translate, you yeah. got to decide what the text yeah. is. So um, so what is that like? In
2: the in, in the early stages, they, they, in a sense, I could say farmed out the work. They involved mm-hmm. a lot of scholars, 60 to 80, I think, made into teams who would translate certain books. Mm-hmm. So you had all these subgroups. Working, uh, Mm -hmm. all under the same philosophy, Mm -hmm. obviously. And then their work was all taken by the CBT, the 15 member committee, Mm -hmm. uh, and they made the final decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, again, but they were working on the basis of the specific decisions that these smaller groups had made. Uh, on the different biblical books. And
1: where the uh, – that's always my next question. The, the groups were divided by biblical book or by author, that kind of thing? Yes, that's
2: exactly right. Yeah. So a couple of my uh, teachers at Trinity when I was in seminary there a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, Walter Kaiser and Tom McComaskey, mm-hmm. were working on a couple of the prophets. Mm-hmm. And, and so they did their work and, again, sent it off to CBT. And mm-hmm. then CBT took that work. It was their job to homogenize it, to right. make sure the whole trends – worked as a single kind of philosophically based rendering uh, and to make the final decisions yeah so I'm, I'm gonna compare it to
1: the NLT just so people get a, a sense of how this gets done when the NLT was revised a new the living translation uh, it was done by book there were teams of three we each made our own individual suggestions and sent that up to the committee yeah. um, did did the NIV work that way or did the teams meet and actually hammer it out before they send it up to the committee.
2: The teams met. They tried okay. to ha- they they tried to, to meet together as a smaller group first to make mm-hmm. decisions before it was sent on to the larger group. Okay. So, um, I, and this
1: process takes you know years. I mean, it. it um, I remember when it was just the NIV New Testament. You know, and that came out first, and then right. you know the rest followed. So. Um, uh, I really do think that most people have little to any clue what goes into uh, into those meetings. So you said you met for weeks at a time, what in the world would you be doing for weeks at a time? Well,
2: again, I didn't meet for weeks at a time. <laughs> okay. I wasn't on, this, on CBT then, but okay. uh, uh, yeah, they would go to, they met in Greece I know one time, they met in Spain one time, spent eight to ten weeks together, whole families would go. Hmm. So it was a family thing, mm-hmm. uh, whole families would go for that amount of time. Uh, and the men would work forty to fifty hours a week, just hmm. sitting in the room, hammering and talking it out, by passage by passage, passage by passage, hammering it out, making mm-hmm. decisions. And uh, excursions on the weekends, I think, once in a while. But okay, they, well, a little they, bit they, of vacation. They really, they <laughs> really kept to the work. They yeah. they worked sacrificially in those years. And, uh, and my. Uh, uh, my hat's off to the people that did that work back in those yeah, days.
1: Yeah, it is a lot of work, and um, we'll talk a little bit about how you approach translation and the kinds of decisions that they're making. But um, okay, so the NIV comes out, and now in the second phase, I take it that mostly what you are doing is working with revisions and improving the translation. You've got something that exists, and you're asking, is this the best way to – to handle the tax.
2: Yeah, it's exactly right. The uh, the whole Bible originally was produced in '78. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a revision in '85, uh, another revision in '2011. That's been our latest mm-hmm. revision. Uh, and over those years, and this is part of CBT's DNA from the beginning. Uh, our charter document says, yeah, we want to produce a translation of the Bible, but we want to keep it fresh Mm -hmm. as there are changes in English Mm -hmm. and as uh, we learn more about the text itself from Mm -hmm. various discoveries or new understanding of words and so forth. So those two things understanding what the biblical text means better mm-hmm. and changes in English are the two things that fuel our revision work now.
1: Okay now now and we'll, let's turn and talk about translation proper and just the approaches to translation. Obviously there's a spectrum of the way people translate. Let's, let's kind of fit the NIV into where it fits on that spectrum and why and then, and then we'll talk some, some detail.
2: Yeah, for better or for worse, and I think it's both. Mm-hmm. The NIV tries to sit somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. uh, There are translations that try to stick pretty close to the structure of the Greek and the Hebrew, mm-hmm. often producing English that's that's not great English because yeah. the structure is a foreign one to English at yeah. times. You have those at one end, the new American Standard. Bible uh, would be one at that point. And then at the other end, you have those who really don't care about the structure at all of the Greek and the Hebrew. They're Mm -hmm. just trying to get the meaning and trying to put the text in fairly easy English. Mm -hmm. So a crucial decision that translations have to make is what's our audience going to be. I like to put it like this. It's maybe some the, the ESV, a popular translation these days, more at the literal end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, is aiming for understandable English. Mm-hmm. The NLT is aiming for easy English. Mm-hmm. The NIV, kind of in the middle, is aiming for natural English. Okay. Uh, and so those are the decisions you make. You, you might all agree on what the text means, uh, but then how do I put it in English? What kind of English do I use? Okay, so that actually uh, raises another question because most people
1: think, well, let us let me back up a step. Uh, you know, sometimes you get into the debate about, you know, how much do you replicate the form of the original language as you present? And I, I tell people if you just pick up an interlinear and just read the Greek in the order in which it's laid out, no one is doing that. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Uh, um, So everyone is trying to render it with an idea about what's going on in what's called the target language, the language that you're rendering it into. And so – and the challenge is to ask not only how could you say this, but what's the best or plainest way to say it, and you've added another layer when that is, what level of English are we going to right. render this at? Yeah. And most people, I think, think, well, you just do the Greek to the English, and it's not that simple.
2: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people I talk to about this think, well, the job that the translator has is sort of just kind of a plug and, a plug and play. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the Greek word, uh, equivalent English word, stick it in and you're done. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of a robot could do that. Mm-hmm. But translation actually works by analyzing the original, mm-hmm. determining what it means, mm-hmm and then trying to figure out how to put that meaning into English, mm-hmm. it's a triangle, it's not mm-hmm. a straight line. Okay. And when you're trying to figure out putting it into English, you have to ask the question, what level of English? Right. Am I aiming for 11th grade English, 7th grade English, 4th grade English? Mm-hmm. Do I want people who speak English as a second language mm-hmm. all over the world, mm-hmm. which makes up a larger number of people now than speak English as a native That's true. language? Yep. Uh, am I translating for them? Am I tr- Translating for people in the U.K.? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or uh, uh, North America? Right. And if it's North America, is it Texas or Illinois or not, Maine? <laughs> not Texas. Not Texas. <laughs> so you just think about all yeah. those decisions that you have to make to figure out, okay, I'm going to put it in English, but what kind of English?
1: Yeah, and, and the challenge of translation, as, as I've already suggested, beyond that is to say, and what – I might have three or four words for a given Term that might work, mm. but then you got to ask what's the best one of those, yeah, and, right. and so then you're in sometimes into very long, um, long discussions about about what's best and why, in relationship perhaps to other words that are mm-hmm. in the context, mm-hmm. etc. So it's exactly yeah. it, so it's a very involved kind of process. It's not very very straightforward in some ways. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Um, sometimes uh, translations come in for a little bit of criticism because um, uh, of choices that they make, and I'm going to raise this. Um, the NIV at one point caught some flack because it was attempting to render Generic terms with generic clarity, if I can say it that way, that sounds good. I didn't say <laughs> I didn't say gender terms, okay? But that's actually what you were dealing with. Talk a little bit about about what that decision involves and why that decision is an important decision to be making for the reader.
2: In the late nineteen nineties, um, CBT just sort of took a look around and saw what was going on in English, and the trends came to the conclusion that very rapidly, uh, words that we used to use in a generic way, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. or man, mm-hmm. uh, were in contemporary English being used with specific generic meaning. Mm-hmm. So that when people would hear the word man, they would not think simply of human being, male mm-hmm. or female, mm-hmm. they would think male as opposed to female. Mm-hmm. So that has to factor in the decisions we make. If mm-hmm. we come to a word in the Greek or the Hebrew that we're convinced is generic, that is referring to men and women equally, mm-hmm. the job we have is to find a comparable word in English mm-hmm. that will that we'll say that. Right. Um, and we decided that man and he just, just didn't do that anymore, mm-hmm. and so we were looking for alternate ways to say that, so mm-hmm. replacing man with person or human being replacing he sometimes with a plural they mm-hmm. or he and she or something of that sort. Sort to, to to simply to try to capture what was going on in English. No ideological agenda. That's at all where I was going next. Yeah. No ideological agenda it's at all. So it's strictly linguistic. Simply doing our job yeah. of putting God's word into the English people who are actually speaking and making it
1: clear that when the audience is being addressed is broad and is male and female that that would be obvious to the reader, so they wouldn't misread the scope of the audience and that yeah, kind of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Um. Uh, well. Uh, so let's talk. I know, I know. I know that there's a there's a hobby horse that you have. I'm going to give you a, a shot at this now, <laughs> and that is, um, you like to make us think about how we should or should not think about the term literal.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit because I uh, when I get asked, you know, about. Literal translation. My general response goes something like this: I think rather than thinking about literal and then having to figure out what you mean by using that term, um, maybe a better term for me is is normal. I'm trying to understand the passage in the context in which it functions, with the meaning that it possesses. Yeah, and. Uh, and so, whether that ends up being literal or not, in the way some people mean that term, may or may not be the case, depending on the context, genre, and other factors that are going on. So that's my shot at it. Take your, take your, take your shot at it. Well,
2: yeah, I am on a bit of a campaign here to banish the word "literal" from our translation discussions, okay. and, and 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 here's why: uh, a lot of uh, Christians, I talk to will ask me, because they know I've worked on Bibles, what's the best translation of the Bible? Yeah, And quickly it becomes clear they mean the most literal translation of the Bible, mm-hmm. assuming then a translation works by plugging one English word into one Greek word. So mm-hmm. you have, let's say, uh, Greek word X, and every time Greek word X appears anywhere in Scripture, you use English word Y mm-hmm. to replace it with.
1: Would it were um, so. <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, this is simply not the way languages work. Yeah. People who know other languages well know that. They, yeah. they, they know that if you want to learn French well and communicate accurately in French, you, you can't do that because you're just going to be making nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like to use the example of the expression uh, ordering apple pie a la mode. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do a Literal rendering there. I want apple pie according to the fashion. (laughs) No, that's not an accurate translation of the phrase. It means apple. It means apple pie with ice cream on it. That's Uh what it means. Uh That's what a translation should do, Mm -hmm. not simply replace the words.
1: Yeah, and uh, when we talk about this a little more technically in our exegetical classes, one of the ways we talk about this is to say, "There's the word, and there's there's what what it." what it means at one level, but then it's actually what it refers to. And sometimes that's not the same thing. So uh, the example Mm. I like to use Mm. is paraclete. It's a good example. Mm. You know, comforter or encourager, you got a choice there, first of all, and then but it's not just a comforter and encourager, and even the word comforter could be misleading, depending on what people are thinking about. <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then, and then, and then from there you go. But in the context of the upper room discourse, we're clearly talking about the Holy Spirit. We're just characterizing an attribute of the Spirit in one way or okay, another in order fine. to describe Him, and so. Uh, to bring out the meaning, you've got to be aware of all those levels that are that are going on with the terms.
2: That's exactly right, and just just having a sense that words usually don't have a single meaning; they have a semantic range. We That's would right. Say. So they have possibilities. Basically. That's exactly right. So, yeah. for instance, if you're translating from English into Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, you have the English word "bank."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Are you referring to a place where you put your money, mm-hmm. or you are referring to a river bank? Yeah. Depending on the choice you make about the meaning of the English word, you're going to choose a different Spanish word yeah. to capture that idea, mm-hmm. and that's just the way all languages work.
1: Right. So, um, so then the the job of the translator is to sort all that out, understand the genre, the context, understand the particular sense that a word might have, and then again, uh, and we actually see the Bible do this with itself. This is a point I like to make uh, that if you watch how the Old Testament gets cited when it's recited. Mm, It isn't always the same wording that you had originally. Sometimes something is being done to bring out either an implicit sense or something like that that develops it in one way or another. And so the the scripture doesn't even handle itself that way all the time. That's a good point. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Uh, and, and so just being just recognizing that there's that much what I call breathing room <laughs> in, in translation <laughs> yeah. um, is uh, is is something that's important to be
0: This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how Evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um...
1: So, um, so let's let's talk a little bit about about the kinds of translations you get. You get asked the question. I get asked often too. You know, which translation is best? And my answer tends to be, well, it depends. Mm. Um, what are you reading this for? Well, what do you, What are you after? Do you understand the philosophy of the translation? What it What it may be, What direction it may be pushing in terms of the way it's rendering, etc. And so, I tend to. I tend to hesitate to answer that question in many ways, at least with the particularity that it's usually asked
2: with. I think it's good to ask the follow-up. What are you going to use it for? Mm-hmm. Who are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, my six-year-old grandkids just got their first official Bibles. Ah. Uh, they did not get an ESV or mm-hmm. even an NIV. Yeah. They got an NIRV, which mm-hmm. is the NIV, which is being put to a lower level of reading mm-hmm. comprehension. Mm-hmm. Great for kids right? and great for people who don't know English well, right. who, again, maybe speak English as a second language, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, so, you have to ask who is going to be reading the Bible, what are you going to be using it for before you answer that
1: yeah, question? Yeah, in fact, uh, another mentor of mine, Don Glenn, who used to teach Old Testament here, worked for years on a translation in which I think the standard was th- uh, third grade English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he said, in some ways, that was more challenging than. You know, operating at a higher level of language because your your choices were reduced in oh, order sure. to keep the English simple.
2: The the whole vocabulary pool you're working with is so much smaller. Yeah, and that would be a, a really tough. Yeah, yeah
1: so um, uh, <laughs> he used to lament <laughs> sometimes about some of the choices that he oh, was faced tough. with. Yeah. yeah, but so. Um, So these translations do a variety of things. Talk about what's involved in revision work because um, I I imagine – well, I'm sure you all get feedback for the renderings that you sometimes give, and I'm I'm sure you have a process for how that happens. Let's say um, I'm reading along and I go, Doug.
2: <laughs> what
1: you Why did you do this? You know, uh, um, uh, one. What would? How does that process work? How do, how would someone submit it? And more importantly, I think for, for this conversation
2: is, what does the committee do with something like that? Yeah, we we gather proposals from all kinds of places. Uh, scholars like you who mm-hmm. might, oh, I'm writing a commentary on Luke, let's say, mm-hmm. as I'm working through the commentary and looking at the NIV and, oh, I've got a problem here. I don't like what they've done here. We got proposals sent to us mm-hmm. from fellow scholars doing that. But I get a lot of proposals sent to us from pastors, mm-hmm. lay people just using their Bible. Sometimes the lay person writes into me and says, I just don't understand this English. I'm yeah. no scholar. I don't know the Hebrew, but... It, I just, as I read this, the English doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And often that's, yeah, something we need to look at probably. Mm -hmm. So I will gather proposals together as the chair. And then usually in March, I will distribute a packet of proposals for all the members to study on their own. And then we will gather in the summer for a week or two Hmm. and just work through the proposals, decide Mm -hmm. is this a good change or not. And- to debate that and vote. We have a built-in conservative process in what we do. Mm-hmm. We, we are convinced the original NIV was done very well. Mm-hmm. Don't fix what ain't broke. Yeah, And so it takes a 70% vote of the members to change the existing NIV text.
1: And do those changes come out as revisions are made, or do they come out and are produced as each printing comes along?
2: No, only in a revision. So okay. again, we had a, a revision in twenty. 11, we've mm-hmm. accumulated hundreds of revisions since then, as mm-hmm. we've met every year since. Mm-hmm. And at some point, maybe in the mid-2020s, we will produce another revision, which includes all of those.
1: Now, does, do you have to hit a certain threshold of the changes? What determines what... It's a very comes? subjective thing.
2: Okay. Uh, and we make that decision along with uh, our sponsor, Biblica is our sponsoring mm-hmm. organization. Zondervan is our North American publisher. Hodder and Stoughton is our UK mm-hmm. publisher. So all the groups will gather and decide, yeah, now's the time to do it. You, you don't in, in our view, you don't want to produce new Bibles very often. Right. Because you, you, you produce an NIV and 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 I guess less and less these days, but, yeah. but churches might buy that as their pew Bible, let's we'll right. say. Or a Sunday school curriculum organization will base their curriculum on the current text of the Mm -hmm. NIV. And you you want to just keep changing that Mm because it just creates so much confusion. On the other hand, you know, to be honest, uh, we on CBT, think we've made some good improvements to the NIV and we'd like to see them get out there and Mm -hmm. for the public to use them and appreciate them. And so it's it's, it's a tug of war between those two Mm. kind of virtues, I guess. Now,
1: let me let me talk about some peculiarities of of translation, and I think the one thing that oftentimes uh, catches people out are the little marginal notes that they sometimes get about a few manuscripts or early manuscripts or even blocks of material perhaps the two most famous are the longer ending of Mark and the adulterer pericope in uh, in John's gospel talk a little bit about how uh, a translation handles those kinds of situations sometimes the verse numbers skip a, skip a, skip a verse yeah. that kind of thing what's going on when that's happening
2: yeah that's a that's a, a complicated and and rather contentious issue. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The texts that we work with, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, uh, are good texts. We have a lot of good evidence for what that text must have looked like. But those manuscripts that we have don't always agree. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we translate the NIV, we have to make our own judgment uh, about what the best text is. Now, we usually are working from the kind of existing generally uh, accepted uh, Hebrew OT, Greek NT, uh, and we work from those, but we feel free to make different decisions if we think that we need to. And as you say then, we will sometimes put one option in the text and use a footnote to indicate here's another really popular option. Um, again, it's a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, particularly in certain parts of the world, we keep hearing that these modern versions have missing verses. Yes. Uh, because verses that were in the King James Version aren't in our modern Bibles. Uh, you know, I like to turn that around and say, no. The problem is the King James had added verses. That's right. <laughs> uh, but again, the, the, the King James heritage is so strong in certain parts of the world, not just North America, right? But more in other parts of the world, uh, that people see a Bible that doesn't have the verses the King James version have, and boy, they have a problem with that.
1: Now, I imagine that it, the is often the case that in the, most of those cases. If, if it's not in the main text, there's a note that indicates what the alternative is.
2: Yes. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that every single uh, – I think every single verse or more that is in the King James and not in the NIV we'll have a footnote about it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I,
1: I I you know, I like to when we talk about this, uh, what I like to say is is that our problem is not that we are missing text, we have the text plus. We have 105% of the text, and it's the job of the translator yeah. to ask what's the right hundred percent here. That's exactly, um, yeah. And uh, um and the and the and the reason some of these verses are not there is because it is the judgment of the group that in terms of the better manuscripts that we regard, and we've found many of these since the time of the, of the King James um, either lack that material or don't have it or in some cases have it and, and it didn't exist before, that kind of thing. People aren't aware of the different manuscript base between, say, the King James version and the versions we have today. Yeah. Um, you have, can you help us with that a little bit in terms of what the sure. scope of that is?
2: Sure. I, th- I think that the total, correct me if I'm wrong, that the King James, in terms of the Greek New Testament, I'd say, was based on about 50 manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most used ones were 5th and 6th century mm-hmm. manuscripts. Modern Bibles are based on about 5,400 manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Now. I need to say, that sounds like a lot, but some of those manuscripts just contain a verse or two, so it's not like entire NTs or something. Right. But obviously a lot more evidence. Some of that evidence goes back as early as the second century. Um, I like to tell people that when you look at, let's say, the NIV and compare it to the King James, what's remarkable, granted that history, mm-hmm. is how similar they are. Mm-hmm. It's an indication of the providence of God in preserving the text force. Mm-hmm. So, sometimes we seize on the differences, and yeah, they are there, but they're such a minority compared to the vast bulk of agreement that you have between the King James and an NIV or an ESV or an NLT. Yeah,
1: and of course, the Technical discipline that we're talking about here is the discipline of, of textual criticism. And, uh, you know, I, I like to, to tell people that, that um, it's generally regarded that you can look at all those differences and say that no core doctrine of the Christian faith is impacted by those differences. What is impacted is how many verses might discuss a particular point and that kind of thing, which I think is an important kind of step-back point to make.
2: I think that's a a very good point for people to make. You're you're not going to make any change to what you believe as a Christian or how you practice as a Christian based on the English Bible you're using. Just
1: the parentheses. What goes in the parentheses? It yeah, yeah, counts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what have you? found – A little personal um, question here. Uh, what have you found um, enjoyable, or challenging, or or enriching about having spent so much time yeah. working with Bible translation?
2: Mm-hmm. Well. Again, as I mentioned I think earlier that uh, serving on CBT has perhaps been the, the my most favorite ministry of all. Hmm. Um, and for me, it's such an enriching experience to, to sit with over two weeks of the summer, let's say, to sit with 14 other top biblical scholars, both old and new, and to talk about what the text means mm-hmm. and how to say it in English. Uh, I remember when we were uh, working on the revision of the Psalms in 2002, I think it was, uh, and listening to my Old Testament colleagues talk about the Psalms for a full week, Mm -hmm. Uh, boy, my Hebrew Grew spectacularly. <laughs> My appreciation for the Psalms and mm-hmm. how Hebrew poetry works just expanded in a significant way. Uh, so that's been one of the real enjoy, enjoyable experiences of that. Yeah, it's and being with and, these we, the, these other folks. That, we
1: did something similar. It wasn't on a translation, but we had a historical Jesus project where it was the same group meeting every summer for ten summers in a row, and. Um, not only did you not only was the subject matter stimulating but the relationships that you built with people and the respect that you developed for the kind of work that they do and the dedication that they have yes. in doing it is important. And all that goes into a translation. I mean, the translation is the product of all that expertise. And again, I think it's just – it's too easy for people to either pit translations against each other or to not appreciate the actual work that goes into doing a careful translation well.
2: Yeah, I'm sure it's been your experience as well, but I know on CBT we have Strong disagreements at time. Mm-hmm. but they are never, in my experience, disagreements over let's say someone's hobby horse mm-hmm. or someone's prejudice. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone views what we are doing with such significance. You know, there, there's a holiness involved here mm-hmm. when we realize decisions we make are going to be read by millions of people as their Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no room for some of those personal agendas. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are Aside, and so I've I've great respect for my colleagues, even when they are foolish enough to disagree with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
2: of course, one of the
1: one of the protections that, of the way it's been set up is is that when you have a a crew of fifteen who have expertise, um, you know you've got many eyes looking at the same exactly. thing, yeah. and so there's a check and a balance that comes into that process that helps.
2: And I think it's it's really good for us to have one group. Mm-hmm. Old Testament and New Testament scholars alike Mm -hmm. working together and making the final decisions because very, very often, you know, I will be making a point about what's going on in Romans, but one of my Old Testament colleagues will say, but have you considered how isaiah's feeding into that and what's yeah. going on there and maybe i haven't considered that yeah. as seriously as i should
1: and and, and so the this depth of uh, of the team uh, contributes to the quality of the translation and the in the way in which uh, debates happen but i i would suspect that when there's a really good debate about what this text means does it mean this or does it mean that and and particularly when there is a distinct emphasis involved that th- that disagreement will show up in in a marginal note or something like that okay. so you don't lose what that conversation's been about
2: we 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 like to use footnotes or marginal notes to indicate you know where we had a serious disagreement and here is an an option although we sometimes realize that our footnotes might sort of be like the fruit that a mother puts in her kids lunch. Uh-huh. She feels good about doing it even though the kid is never going to eat it. Yeah. Uh, so we feel good about putting the footnotes in there but we do wonder how many people actually ever look at them. Yeah. And of course the people who who
1: might care and understand what that involves uh, will almost certainly oftentimes take a look at what's going on there in the margin just to see what yes. – you know, I tell people that you not only have the translation, which tells you kind of what the final decision of the team is, but those marginal notes let you know those handful of places where there is perhaps very genuine uncertainty yeah. about what the exact text is, and thus to be aware of it is a good thing. And of course for students – Who are trained for the pastorate and do that kind of thing? Those notes um, also alert them as to where the text may be uh, may render something differently, and then they're faced with the choice of: uh, Do I tell people about this, or do I just motor on, (laughs) pretend it's not there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and sometimes I do remind my students: you know, if you're looking at this translation, and this is the translation that you're using, and it's in the pew, and you have a pew Bible that has the notes in it, then then a lot of people are, are seeing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sometimes renders uh, helps you to render the choice, do I say anything about this or not? Is yes. no, so, it worth and it?
2: And sometimes it can help the preacher as well if they, let's say, are using an NIV and they uh, draw a different conclusion in their study about what's going on in the text. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can appeal to an NIV footnote and mm-hmm. say, it's so not just me making this up but look right there in your bibles you've exactly. got that as an option and that's the option i'm going with here for these reasons Wh- which that, that's is helpful which
1: is another reason also to make the point that it you know that it isn't just one translation that sometimes working with multiple translations or translations that have a decent set of notes in them Mm. is important. Let's talk about another level of translation that we have just left a little bit of time for but I think is important because sometimes there isn't just the translation, there's the study Bible that comes with it. And I know the NIV has produced a variety of study Bibles associated with it um, that kind of look at things from different angles. Talk about the value of a study Bible.
2: Uh, I think a study Bible can indeed be um, a great help for people who uh, are not going to be building their own theological library. Mm -hmm. They're not going to either have the money or the interest in getting a bunch of commentaries. Um, Those study notes uh, in Bibles where where, where they've been done well, and for most of our major English versions, we have very good study Bibles, um, can give uh, a little bit of insight, background to the text that people wouldn't otherwise be Aware of. So it's a great aid to to, to what I would call the first step of Bible study. Mm -hmm. Might not be the last step, but it's Mm -hmm. a good starting point at least to orient folks to what might be going on. Yeah,
1: I tease people that sometimes. in understanding what's going on in a text, you've got to understand the cultural script that's embedded in the that's text right. and yeah. and cultural scripts are tricky. I, the sentence that I like to use to illustrate it is, and I don't know what kind of a sports fan you are, but um, the cowboys are going up to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. <laughs> and I say, what is that about? And of course the, the international students sometimes struggle, but the local students are, well, that's American football. I go, how do you know that's about American football? American football is nowhere in that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. and. Uh, and of course, it's a cultural script. It's a, the meaning is embedded in the text, mm-hmm. uh, and because the culture is shared, when you share a culture, you don't have to say as much because it's shared, and people will pick up on the clues. And then the next remark I made. But if I gave an Arabic English lexicon to a student in Saudi Arabia and they looked up every word of that sentence, they still might not know what it means after they've looked up yeah, all those right. words. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and, and a study Bible sometimes can point out the background that's at work or something, something that's in play that might not be transparent by just the
2: rendering yeah. of the text. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, so um, let me. I'll, I'll close with this. What, what, uh, what advice would you give to people as they think about using translations and and, and thinking about them, particularly per, perhaps in contexts in which people can sometimes be uh, critical of con- uh, of translations and and uh, perhaps should be a little more circumspect about that.
2: Well, the first thing I would say is that all of our major English translations are well done, Uh, certainly have a place in the library of someone who's serious about studying the Bible so they can look at several translations. And it becomes a matter of personal choice about, well, what level of English do I want to work with? Um, Sometimes a ministry context will affect the decisions we make about that. Uh, I certainly think it's important for people to settle on one Bible mm-hmm. uh, so that they can kind of have a go-to Bible that they are learning from, memorizing, perhaps reading consistently uh, to jump around from Bible to Bible I don't think is, is probably healthy. And mm-hmm. settle on one, of course it should be the NIV, <laughs> and uh, and and make that your Bible. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, uh, our, our joke this week with you has been it's the new inspired version. Yeah. So uh, I like that. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs>
2: I, I can only wish it were true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug, we uh, appreciate um, your willingness to talk about translations with us and sharing some of your experience on the on um, being on the committee and just what it represents. Uh, a thank you to you and to your team mm-hmm. for. Uh, we're doing work like that on the NIV and just the the service that that has provided in bringing the word of God to many people in a in a way and in a manner that that they can understand and appreciate what what's going on in the text and can dive into their own study and and be drawn closer to God as a result. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And we appreciate you as well for coming by and and uh, and sharing some of that with us Nick. Thanks for having me with it. you, Daryl. Glad it's to good. do it. Yeah. And we th- thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you'll be uh, Uh, join us again soon if you have a topic you'd like for us to consider for a future episode you can email us at the table at dts.edu and we'll take it under consideration and we hope to see you again soon on the table
0: thanks for listening to the table podcast for more podcasts like this one visit dts.edu slash the table dallas theological seminary teach truth love well